It's said that your real life begins where your comfort zone ends. Well, it's about to get real as we have radically authentic conversations to help you thrive in your personal and professional life while navigating the twists and turns of being human. Buckle up, because this might get uncomfortable. Starts right now with Whitney Lordson. Today's topic is on, well, partially about, because I think we're going to go a lot more than this subject, but one of the main themes for today is about clutter. And clutter is something that I I think like most people struggle with a bit. And actually, this might be a really good place to start with my special guest, Connie. Connie, have you ever met anyone who does not have clutter in their home, like truly has a clutter-free environment? No, I don't think so. (laughs) But then, of course, that we would have to define what a clutter-free environment means, no? Yes, let's do that. Yeah. One of the things I always say, like we all have clutter somewhere. It's human to have clutter. So in my point of view, it's not necessary to like live with nothing or to <laughs> whatever you define as like the like Buddhist monks, maybe up in the mountains may live clutter-free. Maybe I have never met one, but I'm assuming they live clutter-free. But then my definition of clutter is also like the most clutter we usually have in the head. And while those uh, Buddhist monks are probably ahead of us and have less clutter, I think it's also human to have clutter in the, in the brain or in the mind. So I think in the end, nobody is clutter-free. And so if you asked me for in like the physical environment, our homes, what clutter-free means to me is that we actually live with kind of the right amount of things, not too many that they stress us out and not too little that we can't do what we love to do. Or like if we have hobbies or if we have items we enjoy looking at or having around us. So it's very individual what clutter-free means. But I think if we're, each one of us are a little bit aware of us and how we're feeling, we know whether our house is cluttered or not. So that's how I would answer this. I love that. And that takes a lot of the pressure off because part of my journey and something I noticed with other people is the striving to achieve something that they maybe see other people achieve or achieve something that they have been taught or conditioned or inspired to achieve. And so much of that is looking outward and basing our lives around what other people are doing. And your definition gives us the focus within who we are and making it very relative to our situations. Because to your point, physically, we all live in different homes. I mean, maybe some of us have the exact same home if it's an apartment that looks the same as the one next door or a home that was designed to look exactly like another home. I guess that's possible. But despite the physical construction of a home, the way that we lay things out is going to be very different from someone else. So how is it that we could ever have the exact same relationship to clutter. 
And you also pointed out that it's not just about our physical space, it's our minds as well. And that's very relative. And I think that's such important information because I think I spent so much time in my life trying to fit in or trying to, again, achieve things that I saw other people achieving without recognizing that my version of success, my version of happiness is going to be different from somebody else's, no matter how much I try. And when you realize that, it can take away the pressure and say, okay, I'm not going to look outward to how other people live and how other people think. What if I find what works best for me? Would you say that that is part of your outlook too? Am I interpreting your words the way you intend them to be? You totally got it. Now, what trips us up in this is, of course, that we're not necessarily socialized to look inward. We're more like social, unless you have parents that encouraged you looking inward more than looking for validation outside. But even then, like the whole school system, the whole society is kind of more in a way. And that was even like that before social media, but now with social media, it's even more so that we're kind of socialized to look outside for validation, to look outside what we need to do or how we, I don't like the word should, so I'm trying to avoid it, but that's often how it happens. Know how we should function, how we should live, how we should show up, how we should talk, what we should do, what work we should do, what schooling we should do, you know? And instead of actually looking inward and figuring out what would light me up to do, you know? And also what would light me up, like if we want to stay with clutter, what would light me up in what way to live? Like in what environment, with what things around me, which rooms do I use for what? I mean, like even those are kind of given and, you know, it's like, okay, this is the living room and this is the bedroom. And, you know, and it's kind of like, we're so socialized more and more that, we take this from the outside and forgetting us, actually. Does this even work for me? Is this even what I want to do? Is this even how I want to live? Are these the things that I actually really, really want to have? Or is it just because everybody has whatever, a mixer in the kitchen, we're all having a mixer in the kitchen kind of thing? Yeah. Right. And why do you think that happens? Do you think that that's just part of tradition? Is that part of marketing and capitalism? Are we guided towards trying to live and squeeze ourselves into some sort of box in order to serve other people? Or is there a benefit to trying to live and think like other people? Well, I think it's probably all of it. (laughs) So for sure, we're kind of by nature... We're mammals, no? So we want to, we, we need humans, we need a society, we need people around us, and we want to fit in in one way. No, most of us want to fit in. And then if you go to TV or social media or kind of like those places that have hidden agendas, they're trying to tell us what it means to fit in, what it means when we want to belong, you know? And so when we're not growing up, maybe with foundation in us that 
it's okay what we want, we're maybe always looking to the outside to see how do we have to act? What do we have to say? What do we have to have to fit in? And because belonging is what we want, so we try to fit in. So I think it's both. And it's also like in one way, that's also how we learn, no? Like we learn when we're growing up, we learn from our environment, our parents, our relatives, our friends, And then only later, when we're adults, we can make our own decisions. But some things are then so ingrained in us that it's very hard to change it later. So that might be another reason why we're focusing on outside validation rather than listening to us, because we're so it's so ingrained in us. And maybe we 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 grew up that way. Maybe we learned or thought we needed to fit in and do it that way. So yeah, so I think it's both and it's not wrong. I don't want to ever make anybody wrong. It's just like learning to be aware of it. And maybe if it's possible, choosing what we really want rather than just what comes from the outside is a good first step. It's interesting because it seems like people maybe in their 20s and 30s seem to be really interested in doing things differently, right? And I wonder if it's a life mm-hmm. stage when you finally recognize after college, perhaps university, studying, when you leave your parents' home, you start to find all this freedom to do things your way and that natural tendency to examine how you've been raised and Yet, it also seems like despite wanting to do things differently, a lot of people still struggle. They still find themselves in the comparison trap. They still Mm. shame themselves. You know, when you're talking about the word should, this is something a number of guests have brought up and moving away from how we should do things. But there's so much shame tied into the way that we live our lives, if it's different from other people, it's really challenging, right? And there's also shame tied into clutter. So I'm curious, your passion for clutter, did that come out of a desire to help people look more inward and understand themselves and find the freedom to live the way that they would like? Were the two tied together or did one happen before the other in your passion and pursuit for this? Yeah, so... (laughs) I would not say I have a passion for clutter. I have a passion for people. But so just to wind back a little bit, when I grew up back then, nobody talked about clutter really. But what I realized early on, and I was probably only about 9, 10, 11 years old, is that the environment has an effect on me. I mean, I don't think I really clued off in that detail, I just realized I was lucky enough to have my own room growing up, but it was a very, very, very tiny room. I always joked and said, it's a broom closet. Compared to my friends who had bigger rooms, mine was literally a broom closet. So it was always like I was always trying to optimize my room so that I would feel better in there. And I think That's where it started. And then, like I said, back then, nobody talked about clutter. So I went into finance. But what I then later realized while working in finance, in corporate, in business, that even there, you know, like the environment, so how you have your desk or how you have your things, how many things you have and the things you are having, how they are laid out, 
they either sabotage you or they support you. And so that's then kind of when that started to emerge back up in me where I said, well, you know, you would feel so much better if your workspace actually would be supporting you rather than with all that stress you're having and a lot of work pressure and everything instead of sabotaging you on top of it all. So that's kind of how it started. So I wouldn't say I have a passion for clutter. I have a passion for people and that they're not making their life unnecessarily more stressful and hard than it already is oftentimes, no? So that's kind of how this all happened. And I see it on myself. So I'm not perfect. And I can just see and feel the effect of my environment. And when my office is a mess, how I can't focus. So yeah, that's kind of where it all comes from. You make such a good point about how much our environments, our physical environments and the external, you know, beyond our homes impact us. And we certainly have more control over what's in our homes than what's outside of them. And it's interesting for me because I know that I have experienced throughout my life how great I feel when I don't have clutter, but it still accumulates. And I find myself multiple times a year getting to points of so much clutter so much messiness that I think, oh, okay, I finally have to deal with this. But I wonder often, why can't I just do that every day? <laughs> I think I read in, in something that you had, had written or posted, Connie, that like, you know, there's the practice of just a little, a few minutes a day will really help because instead of spending hours, you're just spending minutes, but you have to do it consistently, Right. My brain, though, works in this, oh, I'll do it later mindset. And I think I've always kind of been that way. It's really not until things get really bad or too overwhelming, or if I happen to be in a very specific mood where I want to tidy up, where I want to declutter. And I feel like that only happens for me a few times a year. So I'm constantly in this state of feeling a little bit of shame, a little bit of overwhelm, a little bit of stress, as you mentioned. And I wonder, is that common? And if so, or even if not so, how does someone like me declutter and tidy up clean more often so that I don't find myself in this constant cycle? Yeah, so that was several questions. So yeah, I, so I would first say it's definitely common and it's also human. So our brain, so our brain wants to be comfortable, it wants to be efficient, it wants to be safe and everything. So whenever we're trying something new or whenever we're trying to do something, no, it, our brain is first answer is always, oh no, <laughs> no, I'd rather not, you know? So it's very human. The other thing I want to say is like, in a way, you do realize that by pushing everything out constantly, you're dealing with shame and then you're most likely also dealing with a lot of like, it becomes really overwhelming and it becomes very stressful and hard to declutter more so than if you would do it on a regular basis. So this is where a lot of times when like you can read all the millions and millions of articles on the internet about how to declutter. It doesn't help because it's just a symptom of something. So what you would have to start doing is asking yourself, what is the underlying reason why I prefer, for example, because you said it, why I prefer 
feeling shame over getting into the discipline to maybe do a little bit every day, you know, and there is no judgment in that. And this is where it becomes tricky because our mind is also constantly judging and the worst one we're judging is ourselves now. So we're very hard on ourselves. So it's very difficult to become really curious. Why do I choose feeling shame, stress, overwhelm over in the moment actually doing something about it? And one thing you were right, what I'm often saying is a few minutes a day keeps the chaos away. And this sounds so silly, simple, and it is true in a way. And do I live it 100%? No, nobody does. But if you get to a point where you actually realize, another thing that I always say is like clearing clutter or keeping decluttered is self-love. When you realize, okay, why is it a good idea now to spend five minutes to maybe clean up real quick? And working through that resistance, because you understand what your thinking process and your emotional clutter that is involved, then you're more likely to do it. In your case, it, I mean, this is not something that you yourself can answer to you in two minutes, or I can give you the right sentence to say in a short interview. But the question is really is like, are you rebellious against something that happened in the past, somebody said to you or whatever it was that you're now feeling like, no, 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 I'm just pushing it out, you know, or is there another reason? Like I said, why would somebody choose shame over feeling better? So, and there is not one correct answer. There's just the answer that is the correct one for you. And this might take quite a while until you figure it out. Because again, this is our brain. We have these habits. We have a huge subconscious. I forgot now what they say. 90% is subconscious. The rest is conscious. So it's like, it's a big journey you would go on. And that's where the baby steps come in. And, and if you're going through this, yeah, then I clean up and declutter and organize. And then I let everything slide again for a few months. There is a reason that only you can discover for yourself why. And yeah, so that's where I would go with this. That is so fascinating. <laughs> I don't think I've ever heard it phrased that way before. And it's worth repeating one more time to ask yourself why you prefer feeling shame, overwhelm, stress, etc. over feeling I think you said discipline. Yeah. But again, our brain, of course, is wired that way. We always choose pleasure over pain, no? And the brain sees going and cleaning up right now as pain. Okay, so we don't want to do that. So pleasure is to stay sitting here watching TV or stay sitting here reading or just not doing anything, no? So it is in one way, human nature. But if we couldn't overcome this human nature, we would all still probably live in caves and we probably would starve because nobody would get up and do anything. So this is where then the question comes in. So the compassion is, okay, this is kind of how my brain works. It freaks out. It doesn't want to go and do this, but we do brush our teeth every day too. We do go take showers so we don't bother our environment with 
<laughs> not taking showers, no. So this to me is a kind of an extension of our bodily cleansing routines and everything is just the environment because it does have an effect on us. And there it does need maybe a bit of discipline, like you said, but you know, it's like so much in our life is habits. So we have maybe a lot of bad habits that we could over time tweak so they become better habits. And then it doesn't need that much discipline after a while. So if you do the a few minutes a day, it keeps the chaos away over a period of time. There is no discipline required, just like right now, there is no discipline required from you to just let it slide and not do anything but feeling shame instead, you know? So that's what I would say. Yes, that is really helpful. And I also find myself wondering if I can retrain my brain to perceive it differently. So instead of looking at it as something I want to avoid, as something that's overwhelming or stressful, things like partnering, decluttering with listening to music or a podcast like this one or an audiobook or talking to somebody. I often will declutter, tidy up when I'm on the phone with a friend. And that way I'm almost distracting myself from the lack of pleasure I feel when I'm just doing tidying up on its own. And maybe it's also tricking my brain. I'm curious if, if you think this is possible. Like, can I trick my brain into not perceiving it as stressful? Can I teach myself to view decluttering as pleasurable so that I actually even look forward to it? I think you can. It needs some training, no? It's like you wouldn't run a marathon tomorrow, <laughs> even if that was the goal. So you would train towards it. And I often say like decluttering is kind of a muscle too. It's a mental muscle. It's an emotional muscle, but it's also like a physical muscle. So you need to train your decluttering muscle. And this is also where it helps to start small and not have these huge expectations of yourself, but start small and build yourself up to do it. And oftentimes with my clients, when they're actually getting to say blunt their budding gear and do something, they come back to me and say, Connie, I feel so much lighter. I feel so much better. This is awesome. And this is when you do the decluttering part correctly, although I don't like, like you, you can't really do it wrong or correct, but correctly in this context means like you feel better afterwards and you're not feeling sluggish or worse afterwards. If you feel bad afterwards, then it's, you probably try to do too much or you did try to declutter something that your decluttering muscle is not ready to do yet. Like running for 20 minutes when you're actually only at the level of running for five minutes right now because you're still building up. So the thermometer of whether you're making good progress is when you actually feel better afterwards. And this sometimes needs to be really to start very, very small, where most people then say to me, oh, well, Connie, that doesn't help. Like, you haven't seen my house. That doesn't help if I just do something for a few minutes. And I'm like, yeah, it does, because you can't just get it all cleaned in one afternoon because it will all creep back in. So if you want it to do it, you can never be decluttered once and for all, because there's always things coming in. Somebody called it a revolving door, I heard once, which is true. No, it's this revolving door is always 
something is coming in again now. So we're never really 100% decluttered, but we can get to a level that is to us comfortable with what I said in the beginning, like, how do I feel in my environment? But I do feel like you can learn to enjoy it when you can't have the proof that you actually feel good afterwards. And then you can tell your brain in the moment, oh, wait a second, I actually feel better afterwards. So, yeah. Yeah, it sounds like a nice challenge, actually. You know, when you asked kind of earlier, like, why would I choose shame over decluttering, for example? And I, that's a really interesting thing that I'm going to ponder for myself. And... I'm someone who I don't really consider myself rebellious, but I get very determined. And when I feel challenged, I tend to rise up. I'm not someone that really even considers myself competitive. I like feeling challenged when somebody thinks like I can't do something. <laughs> That's There's like this desire in me to prove it because deep down I know that I can do it, right? So I get kind of offended if someone says, well, you're messy. And I'll think, no, I'm going to prove you that I'm not messy because <laughs> you know? I don't want to be defined by that perception. But I also have to make it about myself, as we said towards the beginning, and not making it about other people's feelings. That leads me actually to something else, Connie. When I visit friends or family, is, and I think this is a universal thing, but <laughs> something I notice is, they will commonly say, oh, my place is a mess. Sorry about that. Oh, I haven't cleaned up yet, so ignore it. Like they, There's a lot of shame, embarrassment, guilt even of going to visit somebody who doesn't feel prepared for you. Or I see this a lot with mothers. My friends that have children often feel ashamed when I come into their homes regardless of how much time they had in advance notice, there's always this idea of my place is not clean enough for you. I'm sorry. And this big apology that people seem to make. And it's fascinating to me because I generally don't mind. I mean, it's very rare that I go somewhere and I'm offended by clutter. I'm offended by messiness. I think there's a difference, as actually a previous guest on the show talked about how clutter and cleanliness are two different things, right? So you can have a lot of stuff around, but it could still be clean and vice versa. Things could be dirty, but not cluttered. So I think if I was going to lean towards being, quote, offended, <laughs> maybe if it was dirty or grimy and I felt you know, like it was icky or something that that would bother me. But I don't mind other people's clutter so much. And it's interesting to me psychologically how many people feel embarrassed to have company. And it also, as you have mentioned, is very relative. So I've been in a lot of people's homes and their version of clutter can be vastly different from another person's version of clutter. So my question is, Connie, why do you think people feel so much shame for other people to witness the state of their homes, even if it's relatively not so bad? <laughs> That's the question of the century, isn't it? No. So in, in one way, it's for sure like we have these high expectations of ourselves oftentimes, how we should be perfect and whatever. Then again, the outside world constantly tells us how we need to be. And I feel like, especially as women, we have this, this 
we get portrayed as how we have to have it together or how we have to look after everybody else. And only a mother or a, a woman who looks after everybody else and puts herself last is actually the right mother. And I think like that's where these high expectations then come from, because we're again, like we said in the beginning, we're more socialized to look at the outside and make sure we're pleasing or we're conforming with outside expectations and demands rather than with ourselves. The other thing I think is that these women, or maybe there's men too that would apologize for their mess, know that they don't feel comfortable in their home, but they don't take themselves important enough to create the environment that they actually feel comfortable in. So this is one, t- I think I had a podcast episode on my own podcast about that, or I have a blog post, one or the other, because I have, a, I ranted once about this. I'm like, why, oh, why do we run into this frenzy to clean up when we know company is coming and we're doing it for some other person, but we're not keeping the home to our standards, whether they're now unrealistic or not, we're not keeping the home to our standards for ourselves. And this is where actually originally that came from when I all of a sudden got this download kind of thing, like, yeah, it's self-love, you know, like clearing clutter or living clutter-free is self-love because you're actually putting you at least on the same level, like all these people that would come and visit and you would go and clean up your home for them. Like some people take showers and clean up and make everything pretty just because somebody comes over for a coffee, but they would never do that just because just they are at home or or even sometimes for their family. And this is where I'm saying like, okay, why? Like, where do we get this that we are not as important like these other people? And when they're apologizing to you, it's like I said, twofold. It's probably all these high expectations that we think are on us. But the other part is also that we ourselves don't really feel 100% comfortable with the surroundings. And that's why we kind of apologize. But I find it so sad, you know, it's like, if we could at least drop the one from the outside, maybe then we would more likely do something with the one, okay, I don't feel actually really comfortable in in these surroundings either. So let's do something about this. But we're so focused on the outside and then all the the shame comes in and then shame feels heavy. No, I don't know how it feels to you, but I mean, I feel a lot of shame with all kinds of, uh, for all kinds of reasons. And it feels so heavy. And so this heavy feeling, does this motivate us to do something? Not necessarily, no. So it's actually not a good feeling. So why do we, and that's why I said to you, it would be interesting for you to explore why do you prefer feeling heavy and full of shame rather than actually doing something about it for a little bit. And again, no judgment because we, and that says Mrs. I judge myself the harshest, you know, it's like, My coach always says, like, can you be curious rather than judgy? And that's kind of like how we could approach it, no? I love that. Can you be curious rather than judgy? I'm writing this down. (laughs) 
Yeah. I'm a very curious person. And yeah. I actually don't consider myself very judgmental towards others, but I'm sure that I'm judgmental to myself in ways that I'm not even fully conscious of. So you're bringing up so many great questions for me to ponder. I've never heard it positioned this way. And I also absolutely love what you said about how we tend to declutter our homes for others more than we want to do it for ourselves. I don't think I've ever thought about it that way. And yeah, that that shame is so fascinating because speaking of judgment, I I feel a bit perplexed and also sad, as you said, when I do visit someone because it, it's, it's almost like I can expect it. I feel like mm-hmm. unless I'm going to a party or something, like those rare occasions where somebody is really tidying up everything. It seems like almost every single time I visit a friend, and you're also right, like there seems to be a bit of gender involved here because I experience that mostly with female friends, although it's possible maybe I just have more female than male friends. (laughs) But that observation that's so common for them to say those things. And part of me thinks, wow, I, I, I hope that they know that I have unconditional love for them as my friends or family members. Like I'm not walking in their home (laughs) judging them for what it looks like. You know, maybe I notice things and maybe it's Mm -hmm. an observation and I'm not sitting there going, wow, what an awful person they are or they don't have their lives together, especially parents. I have so much compassion for them and and seeing the way that they live and they're just trying to get by. And in fact, I think clutter sometimes is an indication that they have other priorities as much as there are benefits to decluttering. When I've spent extended periods of time with my friends specifically that have young children, I feel like clutter is a way of saying we've got so much going on. We haven't prioritized this, but I'm noticing how they're prioritizing fun with their children. And maybe the clutter is the result of the kids having a good time. You know, they were coloring and the crayons are all over the place or they were building blocks and the blocks are scattered around because they ran into the backyard and then it was dinner time. So now there are dishes in the sink from that. Like sometimes I think clutter in that case indicates a good day versus I just don't know that many parents that truly prioritize clutter because of everything else that they have going on that's more important. And I would almost wonder how they even make it all happen, if if that makes sense. Like the logic there, having seen what parenting is like for most people, I've come to expect it, I suppose. And that's why I don't judge it. If I'm walking into a house with kids, especially young kids, I'm just going to assume that there's clutter there. And if there's not, oftentimes there's somebody there supporting them. There's a nanny or there's a housekeeper or someone else aiding them. I've done that work myself when I used to work as a babysitter. Part of my role, whether they asked me to do it or not, was to tidy up the home before the parents got back from wherever they were. And the joy that I would see on their face that I took the time to do that, the relief that they experienced was so immense because I didn't have that ongoing stress that they were experiencing every day as parents. And I'll even do this for my friends when I visit them as a gesture of love or acts of service, I suppose. Mm -hmm. When I visit, I love helping parents clean up because that relief that I can give them. So yeah, it, it is interesting that like 
despite it being kind of known that that's an average state for the average parent, there's still a feeling of they should have done better. And I wonder, like, do you work with parents, Connie? And if so, how do you guide a parent through declutter? Is Are there ways in which they can make it a priority amongst all of the other things that they have going on in their parenting life? Yes. So I do work with parents, but I always give the disclaimer, I don't have children on my own, so I may not know 100% what they're going through, but I still like I have techniques or I I have things that I can suggest that they can do to make their life easier. But yes, like you just said, it is a fact that as parents, and I would say anytime you live with somebody else other than just yourself, it becomes more tricky. You know, it's like, it's not the same. So this is also where I always say, like, we have to understand what stage of life we're in or what phase of life we're in. And if we're in a phase of with little children, then of course, our house is not going to look like somebody's house on Instagram. But this is where the expectation comes from. No, like there there is Instagram influencers who show off their perfectly clean home, even though they have two or three children. And then everybody else thinks they failing themselves, their family, their children, because they can't be that way, which is absolutely not possible. They probably, like you said, have help or they cleaned up like maniacs before they had the, the film crew in. This is so staged, no? So The question is, does decluttering need to be a priority when you have little children? No, but maybe you want to just have the awareness of, okay, how much, how many things are we letting in? And again, there is also uh, difficult because commercials, advertisers, they tell you constantly what all you need to be a good parent and what your children all need for toys and everything. So it is hard. The more that comes in, the more would actually have to go out again to to not fill up your home and creating this huge overwhelm. But it is a struggle. And I totally acknowledge it is, especially with children and then having these little humans (laughs) and then you need to get them ready for kindergarten or school or anything. Then clutter is the last thing on your mind, no? But even there, there is ways like if you can find ways of thinking maybe twice before something new comes in or getting into the habit. And you can actually teach and talk with your children early on already. So, okay, if we get something new in, maybe we let something else go. Maybe we let something go and and we donate it or we give it to a friend or whatever. We just start talking about it, becoming aware But letting go of this requirement on ourselves and possibly our children that everything has to be spick and spam and beautiful and Instagram worthy, that is more dealing with your mental clutter, I think, than with your physical clutter, at least at first. No, it's like because it is our mental or our mindset that tells us, oh, okay, it has to be clean. There there can't be the Legos can't lay be laying around when visitors are coming. Why not? Like there's children living here now, so the Legos could lay around. And then this is the other thing again, like is the Legos that are laying around on the living room floor, is that really clutter or is it, like you just said, the joy of having a family, of having children and having had a good day, you know? So in my eyes, that's not necessarily clutter. What is clutter is 
all the things that are piled up maybe in the basement or in the attic or in the garage or somewhere else that nobody looks at anymore, nobody uses anymore, nobody does anything with it. But we're still like we're kind of energetically attached to all these things. Our subconscious still knows that's all there that adds to the overwhelm. So this is the clutter that would be worthwhile to find the energy to deal with. And not so much with the everyday things that the children use and play with and that you need to live. That's what I originally said. No, what is clutter-free mean? You want to have enough things that you can live your life the way you want to live. And especially with children, you want to maybe have fun times with your children. So there is a variety of things you need, probably more than somebody who is an empty nester or somebody who is still young and has no children. But you don't, you want to make, be mindful of or aware of the point when it becomes so much that you're starting to just pile up these things somewhere else and they're just pile up and pile up and pile up. So that's kind of what I would say. But there is no easy solution because like I said, from the outside, they're constantly bombarded with you should have this and this and you should do this and you should do this. And again, we're so socialized to look to the outside rather than to the inside that it trips us up. Yeah. Absolutely. And that idea around having so much stuff and it's such a privilege, first of all, to have clutter in a way. Like another way to look at it is, wow, like I am lucky that I have more stuff than I can use, more stuff than I know what to do with. I think acknowledging that is so important. And I love donations and I love getting things secondhand and sharing things. I mean, in an ideal world, I would do that most of the time. I actually am a little bit of the opposite where I tend to overthink everything I acquire. You know, I don't buy a lot of clothes. A few times a year, I'll, I'll get sick of my wardrobe and I'll say, okay, I'm going to finally get something new. But before the pandemic, I actually used to go to clothing swaps with my friends and that brought me so much joy. Part of that was not only taking something from someone else and exchanging things was really nice. It felt like part of a community. The other side of it was that it felt like I could let go of items, but still know that they were being cared for versus like throwing something in the trash or putting it in some random donation bin. I enjoyed seeing somebody else wearing my clothes and knowing like if I really wanted it back, I could get it back. That's the ideal and obviously that that saves a lot of money too. That's part of how I think about things is it's not just the physical clutter. I know something that you touch upon too is financial clutter, Connie, and I want to make sure we touch upon that. But before we do, I, you know, this idea of, of being emotionally attached to items, I think is such a big challenge for us. And I'm curious in your work, why do you think it is that we get so attached to things, especially in a, in a time where most of us can acquire things again. You know, we have platforms like Amazon that not only make it time convenient for us to get new things, but very inexpensive. But yet there seems to be this underlying fear of letting things go as if we'll never get it back. And I wonder, why does that persist in this day and age, Connie? Why do we cling on to things just in case? Yeah, so 
there is again a human nature component to it, and then there is other components to it. But there is a, a phenomenon called endowment effect, and that means that the minute you own something, you put a higher value to it than if you don't own it. And they actually studied that scientifically. Don't ask me the scientists anymore. I forgot the names. Yeah, so this it is uh, scientifically studied that the minute we own something, and it can even be before you really officially own it, maybe that happened to you too, like you go in a clothing store just because you talked about clothes before. Let's take that example. And you see a blouse and you really love it. And now another lady comes and wants to take that and you're already kind of like, no, 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 that's mine. So... The minute we own something, we put a higher value to it. So this is one of the reasons why it's then hard to let go. Another reason is that we're more likely in a scarcity mindset than in an abundance one where we think, no, we're taken care of. Like you just said, if I need it again, I can either get it again, buy it again, borrow it, whatever. We're more more in this scarcity mindset that oftentimes also is coming a little bit from the outside, but we may feel it on the inside ourselves too. And so we we are automatically emotionally attached to our things. And then of course, if we have a, a scarcity mindset, then being in one way emotionally attached to the item itself and then feeling anxious about maybe not having what all we need in a future time makes us clingy to the things. And so... This trips us up, of course, <laughs> when we want to live a, a more clutter-free life. It's the human nature, it's it's the environment. But it's also sometimes, again, the clutter is more the symptom of an underlying issue. So it would be more, the question that I would ask more is again, like, okay, what does this thing give you? Like, not in an obvious way, but in an emotional way, underlying, you know, it's like, with clothes, if we want to stay with the clothes for a second, a lot of women have trouble giving away clothes that they were wearing when they were younger, when they were skinnier, or when they were heavier, depending on which way they were going with, with their weight, when, or when they were perceived their life as easier or happier, you know, and then without knowing, maybe even consciously, they're attaching this whole feeling onto the clothes and then they have a hard time letting that go because that would mean I have to actually that let go of that time of my life, which is not true. We all kind of understand that. No, it, it lives on in our memory and in us if we want to. But we, we put then this whole thing onto the object, no? And so, and like, I'm a very sentimental person, so I definitely have items that would be devastated if I would not have, even though I know the memory of whatever they're representing lives on in me. And so, again, it's not about having nothing and living like a monk, a Buddhist monk up in the mountains. It's surrounding yourself with the things that have meaning to you and letting go of the rest and trusting that you always are having enough. Like oftentimes we're so worried about not having something, which when you when you look with curiosity, like I said earlier, it's actually ridiculous. No, it's like I came across once when I helped somebody declutter, they had four or five pairs of scissors in their kitchen. And 
they couldn't like go off. And I'm like, well, you can only use one scissor at a time. <laughs> like, but it's, it's not about the scissor. It's about the underlying real reason why we have such a hard time. Yeah. Yeah. That makes so much sense. And I'm reflecting on that after I just came back from a two week trip using my car only. And certainly driving somewhere gives me more storage space than flying somewhere because I'm not just I can bring more than just a few suitcases, right? Like I think travel in general is nice, but I love taking long trips, whether by car or plane or however I'm getting there, because it always challenges me to think about what I actually need for that span of time. And in this case, it was two weeks long. And I just like the small amount of things that I could fit in my car and the things that felt necessary was such a fascinating activity. But also what was interesting was the things that I brought that I didn't end up using. I brought a lot of what if items, <laughs> you know, like what if I need this? And I would say somewhere between 20 to 50% of the things I brought, I never used. I never needed them. But then my brain thinks, well, I could have needed them. So I'll, I'll continue to bring them with me next time. And I still don't use them over and over again. And it's like that fear that like, if I'm not prepared, I have a lot of buried stress I've noticed around like losing things and also not being prepared for situations. Like that's like my deep fear is I'm not going to be prepared. I'm going to make a mistake. I always want to be ready for anything because it makes me feel vulnerable if I don't have what I need. So that's something I'm going to be thinking a lot about after this conversation. But I do want to circle back to the financial side of things, Connie, because I, I saw this in your work. And I want to know what financial clutter looks like for you. What does that mean? Yeah, so th that definitely has different faces too. So financial clutter, you can look at it. So if you have a lot of stuff in your home, there is a lot of finances tied up in it. No, it's like, especially like if you have a lot of things that you don't use anymore, that you don't love anymore, but they're just stored there. There's money involved in that. And I'm not necessarily saying that you need to sell it all the time. No, but, but there is, it's like it was once I had a, a lady painting was her hobby once. And so she had all these, how you all that call that all easels and the paint and all these things. She had all these things taking up space in her office of all places. And so every day she walked by and, oh my God, I paid so much money for these things and I'm never even using it. That is one way of having it, financial clutter. And not so much that she spent all the money and that she should feel shame about that, but more like she's beating herself up for spending money for something that one time in the past brought her joy, but now not so much anymore. And so when we talked about it, she was so glad and she says, oh, I could, I actually know the perfect person that I could give this to who would use it, who would be so happy to have it. And I said, yes, why don't you do that? And that way, A, you don't feel this shame every time you walk into your office where you actually wanted to work and serve your clients, but you walk in and you feel shame from what place are we then actually 
doing our work? Is this the best place to work from? And again, no judgment, more curiosity. But the other thing is too, is like so many people are, it's important for them to make donations. And oftentimes they give donations like in money, but maybe you could look at these things that you let go as don also donations, just not, they're not the dollar bills or the cryptocurrency or whatever. They're now in physical forms, in item forms. And letting that go and letting the shame or the um, the bad feelings go that this was something you were interested in the past, but now not anymore. There's nothing wrong with having phases where you're really interested in, in this kind of hobby, for example, and you're, do, you're buying things that you can actually do this hobby and it brings you a lot of joy. And then something changes in your life or something changes in you and you change and your interest goes somewhere else. There is no shame to letting these things go. You're not saving money by hanging on to them, but not using them. No, like this is also financial clutter. You're not like a lot of people say, oh, I spend a lot of good hard earned money on this, so I can't just let it go. Well, yeah, but you can just let it rot in the basement or rot in the garage. Is that then so much better? And again, no shame or no judgment. Curiosity, is it really better? Or would it, like you said, with the clothes, if you can see somebody using or wearing your clothes and having joy out of it, could that not bring you also joy? And you don't have to think about, oh, I paid $50 for this blouse and now she is wearing it and having all the joy out of it. No, you have the joy too. So yeah, so this is where financial clutter comes in, in one way. This is a little bit more the hidden way that most people maybe don't see. A little bit more obvious way is some people buy things double, triple, quadruple because they forget that they have it. And then they come across and like, oh, I forgot I have this because it was somewhere under a pile. And so they spent money, sometimes even money that they wouldn't really have on things that they actually already own, but they don't remember they own them. So that is another area of financial clutter. And the third financial clutter, it comes a little bit from my work as being an accountant and financial expert is if you don't pay attention to your finances and you're just like, and this is where I see a correlation. Oftentimes people who have a lot of clutter are also unorganized or don't pay really attention to their finances that much. It's a generalization, but I just noticed kind of that trend. Then it's almost like you may pay for memberships that you forgot you had, or you may have such a mess that when you have to do your taxes, you can't do them yourself. So you have to hire somebody, but that person takes them double or triple the amount of time because they have to weed through the mess because you left the mess. So there is, is many, many facets of financial clutter that are maybe not obvious right off the bat. But for sure, the more things we accumulate, the more money we spend, no? And so this this is where, where the financial clutter comes in and we could make a whole separate podcast episode on financial clutter. I think it's worth doing it. Have you done this on your podcast yet? Because that's a really fascinating topic. Yeah, I have talked a little bit about it. So I, I have a, a joke Some as a bookkeeper and accountant, I always say like there's a lot of shame attached to our like, 
when people have like maybe a messy financial status or situation. So there's a lot of shame attached. But if you go and help somebody with their clutter, the shame is even higher, as we talked earlier, higher than with our money situation, which is fascinating, no? And I'm very, very interested always in like how the brain works or how we humans work. Now, if you combine these two, just imagine the shame and the discomfort and the not wanting to look at it gets like skyrockets. So yes, I do talk about it. Most people, because they judge themselves so harshly and shame themselves, have a hard time hearing it, even when you, when you actually really come from a compassionate place, it is hard to get through. And this is why, and this is also why I often say we don't start with the most emotional stuff when we start decluttering. That, that's not where we start. We need to start the long hanging fruit that is easier just to get going and to start opening ourselves up to change and that it also can be uncomfortable at times. When we have our uh, decluttering muscle a little bit more in shape, it's easier to face that. It's just like it's easier to run a marathon if you trained for it than when you're just trying to do it because you woke up this morning and figured, oh, I want to run a marathon. Right. Yeah, it's it's amazing everything that you've talked about today and and the complexity of it. And I think it's a further reminder to take it step by step because maybe even af- after listening to a conversation like this, you feel a bit overwhelmed. So for anyone listening, just deciding one thing that you can do. I, I My wheels are certainly turning because over here on this, this side of my home that you can't see on camera, this is, tends to be the place that accumulates clutter for me. The kitchen does too. And earlier today, actually, uh, cleaned some dishes and wiped down some counters. And it just made me feel better because it was, you know, the, the even just seeing dishes pile up can feel so intense. And thinking about everything that you've shared today, Connie, has just inspired me to like, maybe I can just do a few minutes today after this conversation. And maybe I can put this on my daily checklist or my uh, daily schedule and just say, okay, five minutes. Like, can I set a timer for myself? Five minutes really isn't that long. And I feel the stress sometimes of things that I feel like I quote should do. One of them is exercise as well. And I've noticed actually that if I just start small with five minutes of whatever movement I'm going to do for my body that day, if that's all I do, that's okay. But a lot of times after those five minutes, I'm feeling good. So I'll continue to 10, 15, 20. And the rest of the time that I'm spending is optional. So it doesn't feel like as much pressure. And that's what I'm going to try moving forward with the clutter, Connie, after this conversation. And speaking of moving forward, I'd love to know beyond this podcast, if someone is really interested in learning more from you, you have your own podcast, you have social media, I have a wonderful Instagram account that I went to. What are the next steps for someone who might want to learn more from you? Where did they go from here with your education and your support that you offer? Yeah, thanks for asking. Yeah, so I I would encourage people to go and listen to my podcast and maybe even start with the very early uh, episodes where I kind of put the foundation down, how I 
look at things. And what you notice very quickly is I'm quite different from some famous decluttering queens that are out there. I don't look at it from that point of view. Maybe you have heard that now too. It's like I always say it's more a symptom. So it's more interesting what's underneath than and what the clutter represents than um, just getting rid of everything. It's it's literally not about getting rid of anything or everything. It's more about how can I create an environment that makes me feel good or, or that feels good to me or that supports me in whatever I do, because we all want to have support. No, and especially in these times when the, the world is going crazy, the one place where we actually have some agency and control is in our immediate environment. And if we can make that more peaceful, then no, the big world will not be more peaceful because of it, but we will feel a little bit more peaceful because of it. So I would go to my podcast. It's called From Chaos to Peace with Connie. Everywhere you find podcasts. The other place is my website. It's conniegraf.com. Connie with a Y. So C-O-N-N-Y-G-R-A-F.com. And I'm blogging since 2015. So there is kind of, there's a lot of things to read about. Like uh, if you have a business, I talk about client clutter, social clutter. We never even touched on all these things. Like there is, I always joke and say, uh, there's so much more to clutter than you think. <laughs> and I see clutter everywhere. Not always nice, but <laughs> I can see clutter everywhere. And so there's lots to read. You can go to my Instagram, like you went to, uh, there's usually highlights of what you actually find on my blog or on my podcasts, mostly talking about. And then, of course, if you feel ready and wanting to have some support, I always say like clutter clearing is a journey. It's not an event. So if you would want to have a guide on your journey, I'm more than happy to help. And like I said, I come from curiosity and not judgment. I'm helping my clients to switch to that too, because we're always so harsh on ourselves, I'm myself included. And so it's often very helpful to have some outside perspective on whatever we're telling ourselves, all the shoulds and expectations and the perfectionism that we put on ourselves that we would never put on anybody else. But we for sure should be able to do it, you know, so. Absolutely. Certainly your guidance today, your support, the way that you've brought things up that really got me thinking was so helpful. And I'm incredibly grateful. For the listener, I will link to all of the resources that Connie mentioned over at the show notes for this episode at wellevator.com. That's W-E-L-L-E-V-A-T-R.com. In the show notes section for the podcast, there's a full transcript. There will be a video. There will be quotes that I've been writing down so that you can go back and look over all of the wonderful words of wisdom that Connie shared. And at the end, there will be links to everything that she mentioned so you can easily follow her journey or bring her along with your journey. And Connie, thank you so much for being here. And the work that you're doing is so important, so helpful. I love just the grace in which you show up. You have such a peaceful personality. And we didn't see the appearance of your cat today. Remind me what your cat's no. name is, your beautiful cat who who decided to leave once we started recording. <laughs> 
Well, she probably knew it's important, so she shouldn't disturb us. Oh. Yeah, uh, it's a Siamese, and her name is Shaila. And oh. I always say she's the empress, I'm the servant. So, <laughs> but today she was gracious and left us. Oh. Oh, I, I had other podcast episodes where she would walk into the picture and put her tail under my nose. And yeah, so... <laughs> I was actually kind of looking forward to that. So a little sad it didn't happen, but I did get to witness her before. So I'm glad. And I hope you enjoy the rest of your day with her. Thanks again for being here today, Connie. Well, thank you so much for having me. It was a pleasure. Thanks for listening and getting out of your comfort zone with us today. For show notes and more high-performance resources to help you thrive, go to Wellevator.com. That's W-E-L-L-E-V-A-T-R.com.